The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Diagnosing and Managing Axial Spondyloarthritis, the Role of the Primary Care Clinician in Multidisciplinary Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash ZQX860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, this is Dr. Philip Mies from the Swedish Medical Center at the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle, Washington. Welcome to this educational activity on axial spondyloarthritis, also known as AXPA. Joining me in this discussion is Dr. Beth Smith, a primary care clinician from Legacy Health in Portland, Oregon. Thank you, Dr. Mies. It's a pleasure to be joining you today. The title of our presentation is Diagnosing and Managing Axial Spondyloarthritis, the Role of the Primary Care Clinician in Multidisciplinary Care. Our objectives for today's agenda are to provide you with the latest information on diagnosing AXPA, exploring the safety, efficacy, and mechanism of action data for biologic therapies for AXPA, and to help you collaborate with specialists to provide treatment and support for patients with AXPA. Beth, take it away. Thank you, Dr. Meese. So, axial spondyloarthritis is a group of inflammatory disorders that share several common features, synovitis and enthesitis, a similar association with HLA-B27, and is usually RH factor or rheumatoid factor negative. There are a whole group of disorders, and they tend to be divided into peripheral spondyloarthritis and axial spondyloarthritis. Under the peripheral spondyloarthritis, there's psoriatic arthritis, reactive arthritis, the arthritis associated with inflammatory bowel disease, as well as a broad spectrum of undifferentiated peripheral spondyloarthritis. In the axial spondyloarthritis, there are those that have radiological evidence and those that don't have radiological evidence. But as you can see from this Venn diagram, there really is quite a broad spectrum of overlap. So axial spondyloarthritis became the standard nomenclature in 2009. And it was based on a multinational study by ASAS, which is the Association of Spondyloarthritis International Society. And they divided it into these two main subtypes, um, that with uh, radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, and many of us know that as ankylosing spondylitis, and those that don't have radiological evidence of ankylosing spondylitis, um, and we call that non-radiographic. There are different validated classification criteria available for patients with the peripheral spondyloarthropathies as well. But these patients whose symptoms are not predominantly back pain, but are psoriatic arthritis, reactive arthritis, and that, again, associated with inflammatory bowel disease. So when we think about differentiating from non-radiological and uh, ankylosing spondylitis, um, there are these criteria that we think about. And I wonder, Dr. Meese, if you would weigh in here about um, how we, what our current thinking is around non-radiological and ankylosing spondylitis. 
Well, thank you, Beth. The first thing to say is that ultimately, as we look into the future, we're going to see the term ankylosing spondylitis gradually being retired. And the whole category, if you will, will simply be called axial spondylarthritis, and we won't make this distinction between radiographic and non-radiographic. Just in the same way as we don't typically uh, distinguish seronegative from seropositive rheumatoid arthritis, other than uh, that certain drugs might work a little bit differently in, in, uh, in serologically positive or rheumatoid factor positive rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, the, uh, one of the things that uh, was realized uh, when we used the old non-modified uh, New York criteria for ankylosing spondylitis, it required that the patient have definite damage in their sacroiliac joint x-rays. Well, we know that many patients take years before they show radiologic damage in the sacroiliac joints. So although that provided more specificity, it was really insensitive uh, to recognizing the broader spectrum. And we now know that roughly half of the patients are in the non-radiographic category and may stay in that category for the rest of their lives. And this is especially true for females. Uh, for whatever reason, females are lucky uh, in that they don't have uh, uh, the structural damage uh, uh, in as intense a way as males do. So they're protected from that and uh, don't show up with that kind of ankylosis, uh, thus the getting rid of the, the term ankylosis. Uh, and so I think that this is now uh, doubling the frequency of this uh, condition in the population now that we are embracing uh, the non-radiographic aspect of it uh, and diagnosing it more, especially in women. Thank you so much, Dr. Meese. And, and as this slide shows as well, that often before we see evidence on an x-ray, we are seeing evidence on an MRI. Um, and, and that can help lead us towards that, that earlier diagnosis of AXPA. One of the things that we want to think about are what are some of these unique differences between non-radiologic AXPA and ankylosing spondylitis? And as you can see from this table, there are a lot of similarities. The average uh, mean years is 36 years old. Um, the frequency or prevalence of, of uh, peripheral arthritis is similar, right around 18%. And the HLA-B27 positivity is also similar, somewhere between 70 and 75%. But there are some real unique differences. And one of it is that we see a greater male uh, predominance in the ankylosing spondylitis. And the other is that we see um, a higher frequency of seeing positive or elevated CRP positivity. So closer to 50% in ankylosing spondylitis versus 30% in the non-radiological AXPA. So how common is AXPA in the United States? There was a great NHANES study, 2009 to 2010, that looked at 5,100 participants from the U.S. And they showed that chronic low back pain is very prevalent. 19.4% of the U.S. population experienced it. Inflammatory back pain, on the other hand, was much less prevalent. That was 7%. AXPA, 1%. 
and ankylosing spondylitis, only 0.5%. HLA B27 prevalence on average is 6.1%, but we do see a difference between different races. So non-Hispanic whites, 7.5%, whereas Mexican-Americans, 4.6%. So what is inflammatory back pain? Um, not only is it a cardinal symptom of patients with AXPA, but there are other features to think about. It's back pain that starts early in age, before the year, before 45 years of age, and lasts greater than three months. Uh, the sensitivity of inflammatory back pain for the diagnosis of AXPA is 70% to 80%, and the specificity varies depending on the population being studied. In large cohorts of patients with back pain, up to 30% of patients without AXPA might actually have inflammatory back pain. Inflammatory back pain is more than just an early age onset. So what else does it involve? An insidious onset? Inflammatory back pain improves with exercise. It doesn't improve with rest. And it's common to occur at night. And once you get up and move around a little bit, it's, uh, it's better. And the sensitivity and specificity of that are both in the 70%, 70 to 80% range. So for inflammatory back pain, you must fulfill at least four of these five parameters to be classified as such. Dr. Meese, do you want to make any comments on these criteria? So if there's one slide that I ask you all as participants to embed, it's this one. Try to memorize uh, these five items uh, because as you approach your patient with back pain uh, and ask them a question like, does your uh, back pain get better as you get up and move about, uh, uh, then that's a key clue. But then a really key clue is asking them, do you find yourself needing to get up about two in the morning, uh, move about in order to relieve a back pain that has woken you from sleep? Now, that, that's when my patient, who's new to me, looks at me with surprise, kind of saying, how do you know that that's going on? And boy, does my wife hate this uh, <laughs> when I get up uh, and move, have to move about uh, but that's exactly right. There's something about the gelling as you're you're sitting there or lying there, excuse me, at at rest, uh, which in, uh, leads to increased back pain. So try to remember these five items because this is a key uh, for uh, finding a clue uh, to a, a immunologic inflammatory disease. That's a wonderful point, and thank you for driving that home, Doctor Meese. So here are some of the typical clinical features of AXPA. We want to think about musculoskeletal, non-musculoskeletal, as well as other features specific to AXPA. So musculoskeletal, let's think about that. So number one is that inflammatory back pain. But there are other things. We've talked already a little bit about enthesitis. That's important to think about. Peripheral arthritis or synovitis. As well, dactylitis, we think of that especially with our psoriatic arthritic patients, and anterior chest wall pain. These are some of the musculoskeletal features uh, or typical clinical features uh, of AXPA. What about non-musculoskeletal? This is where we see that the psoriasis. 
the inflammatory bowel disease, and the uveitis in the eye. The other features to think about are that HLA-B27, and there's a very strong association with it. We saw that in the general population, HLA-B27 is only about 6% prevalent, but it's about 75% prevalent in people with AXPA. We also see a familial aggregation and negative rheumatoid factor. So here's a slide that demonstrates some of the uh, frequencies of presentations and experience or manifestations that are extraspinal. So we see that inflammatory bowel disease is there, but a small percentage, um, dactylitis a little more, psoriasis a little more, uveitis um, a little more, especially in our, our ankylosing spondylitis group or radiolog people with radiological evidence, and then also the enthesitis and the peripheral arthritis, which are pretty common uh, and, and similar between both. I think one of the most important things to remember as a primary care provider is that there are a lot of comorbidities that we see with people with AXPA. Uh, and, and what is that relationship in people that don't have AXPA? So we see a, a high prevalence of hypertension, depression. Depression we see in a lot of people with chronic uh, illness, chronic medical illnesses, um, but especially with a lot of our, our rheumatological uh, conditions. So higher prevalence of depression, uh, CPD, cardiopulmonary disease, diabetes, cardiac arrhythmias, thyroid, uh, hypothyroidism, obesity, osteoporosis, liver disease. So, so we see that that's, uh, that's present more frequently in our patients who have AXPA. And I think as primary care providers, we really have to remember that it's more than uh, what we're seeing in their joints. And what are some of these late complications then of AXPA? There are multiple extra-articular manifestations. So cardiac, we can see conduction disorders. We can see aortitis or aortic insufficiencies. We can see secondary amyloidosis or IG nephropathy affecting the kidneys. Um, in the lungs, we can see fibrosis of the upper lungs, so pleural thickening. And neurologic, because of the ankylosing effects on the spine, we can see cauda equina syndrome develop. So this is a, a algorithm used to help in the diagnosis of AXPA. And, and I'm going to ask Dr. Meese to help give us some guidance as to the approach in, in diagnosing. Thanks, Beth. So... Uh, we start with a patient with chronic low back pain, really common presentation in your practice. So a starting point that you often do uh, as primary care physicians is uh, to order a set of lumbar x-rays. But if the patient is displaying evidence of inflammatory back pain, if they're younger, one of the things that you might think about doing is not only order lumbar, but also a pelvis x-ray. And when you ask for the pelvis x-ray, uh, don't just uh, uh, send it without a little bit of gu guidance to the orthopedist because I uh, often see the report coming back, uh, no hip fracture or something like that. 
with not even a care to look carefully at the sacroiliac joints. Uh, it's very common for me to see a patient who's had numerous sets of x-rays, but never, but nary a look at the sacroiliac joints, which are really critical. So if, if you get a, a set of x-rays that shows already there's damage uh, with periarticular sclerosis of the SI joints or some joint space narrowing or erosions, you don't have to go any further. You've already got the diagnosis, uh, young person, uh, uh, positive changes on x-ray of their sacro sacroiliac joints, um, uh, there you go. But if the x-ray of the pelvis doesn't show sacroiliac changes, then you have to start de deep, delving more deeply into the history. So there's a list of things here uh, to ask about uh, that Beth has already alluded to, including asking the inflammatory back pain questions, which have you memorized already? I hope you have. <laughs> Remember. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, and uh, but also asking about other things. Uh, might they have had Achilles uh, tendon problems? Might they have had a fat swollen digit? Did they have eye inflammation? A po uh, family history? Might they have had uh, Crohn's or ulcerative colitis? Um, alternating buttock pain, meaning sacroiliac involvement, psoriasis, and so forth. Uh, so if you, if you get several of these cropping up as being positive then we encourage you to uh, order a, a B, HLA B27 test. Easy to do, not expensive. Uh, and uh, if that is positive, then that um, will help guide you into the diagnosis. Uh, and uh, if it's, uh, whether it's positive or negative, we often proceed to getting an MRI scan, especially of the sacroiliac joints. So if the normal X-ray, but it shows light up, in the bone adjacent to the SI joints, which represents lymphocytic infiltrator inflammation, then that's a key finding. Uh, so we encourage you, to, again, focusing on the SI joints and not just the lumbar spine. And there you go. That's very helpful, Dr. Meese. So here's a possible screening approach for those of us in, in primary care. For a patient who has chronic low back pain that's been going on for more than three months, and that started at less than 45 years of age. Look at the features of inflammatory back pain. Do they have four of those five criteria? Look at a pelvic x-ray. Do they have sacroiliitis on imaging? And if you have an even higher index of suspicion, you can get that MRI of the SI joint. Look and see if they have HLA-B27. If these things are coming back positive, refer to a rheumatologist. And even with this approach, a rheumatologist will diagnose one patient with AXPA for every three patients seen with chronic low back pain who are HLA-B27 positive. So what are the diagnostic challenges? Because there is quite a bit of time, average about seven and a half years, between initial symptoms and diagnosis compared to rheumatoid arthritis, where diagnosis is usually within nine months. And I think the biggest challenge is that there are multiple nuanced presentations, and that means that diagnosis is never straightforward. Someone may come into your office with Achilles tendonitis, and you see them, and it seems to get better, and then a little while later, they're coming in with a back pain, or maybe they get uh, are seen by an ophthalmologist, and they get, get diagnosed with uveitis, and you're not aware of that. And it's often hard to put all of those 
symptoms together and understand that they are all part of the same picture, if you will. Um, some studies suggest 5 to 25% of patients who present to primary care offices with chronic low back pain could have AXPA. So what are some of the differential diagnoses? We've included this slide. You can go through that, um, but there are a number of different things to think about. And we want you to always be thinking about what is the differential diagnosis if it's not AXPA. Thank you very much, Beth, for uh, that wonderful overview uh, and introduction to uh, screening the patient for possible uh, spinal arthritis. I'm going to uh, now proceed with discussing uh, what do we do with these patients now uh, that we maybe have a diagnosis and, uh, and want to treat them effectively, and how successful are we these days? So our goals include reducing the symptoms obviously of back pain, but remember there are going to be other symptoms as well, possibly peripheral arthritis or enthesitis. A common symptom is fatigue. When you have an outpouring of inflammatory cytokines, they affect the central nervous system as well. And one of the patients often describe this troublesome uh, brain fog or fatigue, uh, which can lift uh, with effective treatment. We want to uh, do physical medicine approaches uh, to uh, maintaining spinal uh, flexibility uh, and uh, mobility. We want to uh, get the patient back to work uh, or maintain them at work and decrease some of the complications that Beth alluded to earlier, including some of the comorbidities. Here are the 2019 American College of Rheumatology, Spinal Arthritis Association of America, and Spartan, a spinal arthritis-focused uh, uh, association in, in the United States. Uh, these are the recommendations for patients with active uh, radiographic or non-radiographic axial spinal arthritis. We start with trials of non-steroidals, one or two on, uh, at least for a week each uh, to see if they can be effective. We refer patients to physical therapy we don't use steroid medications. We don't use prednisone. If the patient has, say, an, an isolated sacroiliitis, we could consider uh, a steroid injection of the sacroiliac joint. We tend to avoid injecting around the Achilles tendon to avoid rupture. By the time the patient gets to us, they're, uh, as rheumatologists, they've already tried several non-steroidals and gone through this, uh, this approach. And so they're ready to go on to and immunomodulatory medication. Typically, we first choose a TNF inhibitor, but increasingly, uh, as more drugs become available, we may choose another uh, uh, initial biologic, uh, such as an interleukin-17 inhibitor. We don't have a preference for a specific uh, TNF inhibitor in relation to the spine, but if the patient has uveitis or uh, inflammatory bowel disease, we tend to go with the monoclonal construct uh, and not use a tanercept. If the patient does not do well initially with this first immunomodulatory medication, or if they uh, lose effect over time, or if they have side effects, then we either move on to a second TNF inhibitor, or we may move on to an interleukin-17 inhibitor, such as secukinumab or ixekizumab, uh, or uh, uh, to the use of a Janus kinase inhibitor, such as uh, 
tovacitinib or, or upadacitinib. Uh, and uh, at this point in time, we will often uh, try various medications to see what will work uh, for the patient best and maintain them. Uh, and once we get to a state of low disease activity or, or, uh, or, or relatively inactive disease, how to maintain them there. Always we um, uh, buttress the uh, educational efforts of the primary care physician by going into more detail about the potential course of the disease, the importance of doing exercise uh, approaches, uh, how to care for their back, uh, uh, the importance of monitoring disease activity, monitoring uh, the treatments for potential side effects. Uh, as I mentioned, typically the patient has already been through nonsteroidals. We make sure that they are not smoking uh, because this can uh, lead uh, to worsening pathophysiology. Uh, we also, uh, as Beth has mentioned, uh, focus on uh, assessing for depression uh, and uh, psychosocial impact. There are a number of benefits of the biologic uh, disease-modifying drugs. These are drugs that are injected, either subcutaneously or infused. They're large proteins, which is why they have to be given parenterally. And once these drugs, uh, especially the uh, TNF inhibitors back in the early 2000s, were introduced uh, uh, sh having shown benefit uh, in trials uh, for the radiographic form of axial spinal arthritis, we could see that they had dramatic effects on uh, suppressing inflammation, improving pain, improving physical function, work productivity. Uh, and uh, so this really revolutionized our ability to take care of these patients. But there are some limitations. Sometimes they don't adequately work. Uh, and so we have to move on to a different uh, one of these medications. Uh, they uh, may not have sustainment of their um, remission status. They could have adverse events, including, um, for example, infection, or they may just um, not be fully satisfied with where they get to. Uh, this is the list of the medications uh, that have been approved uh, for the treatment of axial spinal arthritis, five TNF inhibitors, two interleukin-17 inhibitors, and two Janus kinase inhibitors. And you can see that they're also approved for other autoimmune diseases as well. The next few slides show you measures of response to treatment here using something called the ACES-40, which is a composite of a number of patient-reported uh, uh, measures, including pain uh, and function. Uh, and we uh, can see that approximately uh, 50 to al uh, almost 60% of patients are getting uh, this degree of relief. Uh, and it, all of these drugs work similarly. Here we're seeing ACES-20, a, a slightly lower threshold, uh, and uh, we're seeing over 60% of patients achieving this degree of response. The same has been shown with the patients with non-radiographic axial SPA. Those patients that don't yet have evidence of radiographic damage, uh, and, but do have inflammation in their sacroiliac joints and spine, uh, we see very similar degrees of response. So there's no difference in the way that we treat these, uh, these particular patients. 
Here is data from the interleukin-17 inhibitors, uh, again, uh, showing uh, the efficacy at we as early as week 16, uh, uh, both with secukinumab and ixekizumab. And the uh, side effects of these drugs is slight, uh, not a major signal for serious infection, uh, no, no signal for malignancy. And here we have the same data uh, uh, re response with uh, non-radiographic patients uh, showing that they have very good degrees of response. Just to mention a few adverse events, we see a few more, uh, more uh, cases of upper respiratory infection, a little bit of uh, incidence of headache and diarrhea. These are common issues and tend to be mild to moderate. So this is uh, newer data with secukinumab. Uh, the first uh, one on the left shows head-to-head -head comparison between use of secukinumab versus an adalimumab biosimilar medication. And on the right, uh, two-year data uh, from the PREVENT trial uh, showing uh, reduction uh, in uh, imaging changes of the SI joint over time. There are a number of, of medications that are coming along uh, for treatment of uh, AXBA, including new interleukin-17 inhibitors, including a fascinating class of what are called nanobodies, very small molecular weight uh, medications uh, which may have better tissue penetrance. We're seeing a broader expansion of uh, IL-17 A and F in the form of a drug called abimekizumab, and so on. So it, there's a bright future for new medications. Thank you so much, Dr. Meese, for that uh, wonderful discussion of how do we treat people with AXPA. I think one of the things that we should end with here is talking about team-based care, what it is and why it's so important. Um, the IOM says the provision of health services to individuals, families, and their communities by at least two health providers who work collaboratively with patients and their caregivers to the extent preferred by each patient to accomplish shared goals within and across settings to achieve coordinated, high-quality care. And that's really what we aim towards, and it's what the our societies really recommend. It helps us to get early diagnosis, early referral, better healthcare utilization, and improved patient outcomes. There are multiple things that we need to, to think about when we think of collaborative care. Communication is one of the most important. Making sure that we communicate with our, our gastroenterologists and our ophthalmologists and our rheumatologists and the primary care uh, provider, there are some barriers to it. And, and the biggest barrier is how do we do this? It's sometimes more helpful in a coordinated healthcare system, but it's still difficult. And, and time is an issue. Financial resources are, can be an issue. And skill and knowledge gaps in primary care can even be an issue. And I think, Dr. Meese, are there any other barriers that you've noticed as we look at team-based care, which is so important for our patients? I think a key thing is, is just simply communication, picking up our cell phones and calling uh, each other. I think that's really important. I, I have a number of primary care docs, uh, dermatologists, uh, 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 physiatrists, uh, pain specialists on my speed dial. Uh, and I think it's just 
cuts through some of the bureaucracy to be able to do this, as well as uh, use of the uh, electronic medical record uh, and the secure chat mechanism to get at each other. Um. So in conclusion, we want to identify chronic low back pain in people younger than age 45 and figure out if it's inflammatory or not. And if we're concerned about an inflammatory nature to their back pain, let's get them into a rheumatologist for a granular evaluation. Start with the plain fills. Look at the HLA B27 if we're having additional symptoms to suggest of it that is suggestive. And as a primary care provider, it often takes months to get into rheumatology. So Start them on the NSAIDs, get them into physical therapy, help them quit smoking, give them the education, and and get them into the rheumatologist. This was a great discussion on the exciting developments in AXPA diagnosis and treatment and how these advances may positively impact quality of life of our patients. Before we conclude the program, be sure to review and download the resources that we mentioned and please feel free to share them since they may help other clinicians who care for patients with AXPA. That ends our discussion for today. Thank you again, Dr. Smith, for your insights. We hope you found the activity informative and useful to your practice. Thanks again for participating. This activity is certified by Penn State College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash ZQX860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation.